Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Stay-at-home orders could be extended as hospitals prep for another surge. Yesterday, we only had six ICU beds available in our healthcare system. Today, we have 12 staff beds available. But unfortunately, that's as a result of nine deaths. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is Midday Edition. A trans woman's journey to seek asylum at our border and a close look at how our immigration system is working. Plus, a look ahead at how a new administration may change that. People have been returned to their death who arguably were the kind of people that the system was created to protect. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. After Thanksgiving gatherings and holiday shopping, COVID-19 continues to spread at a fast pace. ICUs are filling up to capacity, and now the governor is considering extending the state's stay-at-home orders. It's an effort to slow the spread just as vaccines are being dispersed, and scientists are looking into the possibility of a more contagious mutation in the virus circulating through California. So how are hospitals faring? Joining me is Chris Van Gorder, CEO of Scripps Health. Chris, welcome. Thank you very much. So the Southern California region is still at 0% ICU capacity. How is Scripps doing right now? Well, right now we are 89% full. It's actually a little bit better than we were yesterday. Uh, yesterday, we only had six ICU beds available in our healthcare system. Uh, today, we have 12 staff beds available. But unfortunately, that's as a result of, of nine deaths, uh, COVID deaths in the last 24 hours. And uh, the good news is we were able to discharge 48 Uh, COVID patients back home again. So there's a lot of turnover of patients, a lot of admissions, um, and a lot of discharges every day, but we're staying very full. All right. Um, And how is that impacting care? A little over a week ago, we began hearing about ambulances waiting outside hospitals for hours before being able to transfer patients. Is that something Scripps has experienced? 
I'm not aware of, of ambulances having to wait hours outside of our um, hospitals. Uh, clearly, we try to uh, clear them as soon as we possibly can. But as I said, we're full. Um, right now, um, we have 413 COVID patients uh, in-house, um, but we have 16 uh, in the emergency rooms right now waiting for bed availability. So anytime we have regular emergencies, plus this large amount of, of COVID patients that are in the emergency rooms, in this case, 16 more waiting for beds inside the hospital, it will have an impact on the EMS system as well. And is uh, the coronavirus extending wait time in the ER for care? Well, we're very busy, so care probably is extended a little bit longer. I don't have the actual numbers in front of me right now, but uh, we try to get our patients through the system as fast as we can. Uh, Obviously, most of the patients that come to the emergency room are sent home the very same day. Um, But uh, as busy as we are and as busy as every hospital uh, in San Diego County is, uh, I'm sure the wait times are a little bit longer. And has Scripps had to transfer patients to other hospitals to increase capacity at all? We transfer patients every day within our healthcare system. We have not had to transfer outside of our system. So every day we transfer non-COVID patients to open up capacity, primarily at Scripps Mercy Chula Vista and Scripps Mercy San Diego. So last night uh, we transferred three COVID patients, one to La Jolla and uh, uh, two to Green Hospital. And are you accepting patients from other hospitals in the county? Well, we, we're a tertiary healthcare system with a, with a trauma center. So uh, we accept trauma patients from other hospitals um, every day. Uh, that's part of our, our responsibility. We are not accepting transfers, uh, COVID transfers right now from outside of the county, uh, Imperial County, for example. But we do accept trauma cases uh, or uh, cases that need a higher level of care from Imperial County. That happens on a regular basis. The last stay-at-home order went into effect on December 6th. At Scripps, have you started to see the impact of that order yet? Not really. Um, we you know, saw a big surge uh, after Halloween. Uh, we saw an even bigger surge as a result of Thanksgiving. Um, yesterday, for example, uh, we our, our COVID census went up by 26 uh, patients. So that's actually a very large uh, increase in our overall census. Uh, in the county, there's 1,590 COVID patients in our, our hospitals and our county hospitals right now, and that has been increasing every day for several weeks. So we haven't really seen a flattening out yet, and unfortunately, we anticipate another surge uh, because of Christmas, and we expect, expect a surge on a surge on a surge uh, after New Year's, which is why we're pleading with everybody out there to try to stay at home, limit your travel, follow the guidelines. Uh, because we are maxing out uh, hospital capacity in San Diego County. I've been speaking with Chris Van Gorder, CEO of Scripps Health. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you. We turn now to Scott Evans, who is the CEO of Sharp Grossmont. He's joining us from the hospital's COVID vaccination clinic. Scott, welcome. Hi, good morning, Jane. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, Can you tell me how staffing and capacity are holding up in your ICUs right now? Sure, absolutely. Well, it certainly has been rough, Jade. Uh, Right now, we're using 69 of our 75 ICU beds, of course, uh, but many of those patients are extremely sick. The issue really isn't about physical beds. It's more about nursing. Uh, Today, actually, we're doing a little bit better than yesterday, but we are running usually uh, four or five uh, ICU nurses short. And we tend to use nursing extenders to fill those roles, which are nurses that float in 
from non-ICU units to cover. And so that's how we're, we're making it work. Mm. And how does that impact patient care? Well, um, we hope that it, it doesn't, but of course it could cause uh, delays in, in care at any given time. And so we have you know a very busy emergency room here at Sharp Grossmont, and uh, we have patients that are needing to come up to beds. And so those hold times are longer in the emergency room, which I think is an impact. The other item that actually impacts that a little bit is the discharge process. And so if we have patients that are going to a skilled nursing facility, some of those skilled nursing facilities are closed to admissions at this time. And so it sort of backs up the process, as you, as you might imagine, and makes it very tight. If Governor Newsom's predictions of COVID cases are right, with 100,000 hospitalizations in the coming weeks, do you see your hospital having to ration care at any point? Uh, Well, we hope not, uh, but we certainly do uh, have those processes in place if we need to move to a crisis level of care. Uh, San Diego County has many plans prepared in order for hospitals to do that, as well as hospital and other and health systems. And so while we are hopeful that that is not the case and that we're able to continue to operate uh, at a standard level of care, we are prepared to do so if the need arises. And have you all been able to get any relief so far by sending patients to the Palomar Field Hospital, for example? Uh, Grossmont has not uh, sent any patients over there. Um, We are essentially monitoring our situation, you know, daily, uh, if not uh, several times a day to see what our needs are. Uh, We are really trying to be self-sufficient to to the extent that we can uh, and continuing to deliver care. Um, but but we do know uh, that that is a, an available option uh, if we do need to use it. And have you guys had to send any patients outside of Sharp? I'm not aware of any that we have yet. Okay. Uh, you know, with scientists looking into a more contagious variant of this virus, are there ways you all can prepare for far more hospitalizations than what's being projected? Well, I think we're learning a lot right now, um, and we're certainly learning a lot about how to manage our capacity. Um, And having been doing this now for uh, several months, I think we're actually getting better at it. Although I will say that the, um, the exhaustion level is high uh, with, with much of our staff. Um, I think that, um, that we're, we, the things that we're learning will absolutely inform us uh, going forward. And so, um, we, we certainly are making sure that we uh, uh, always will have enough ventilators, we'll have enough ECMO machines, uh, those type of things. And I think even as we're going forward on things like master campus planning, uh, where we're looking at uh, capacity for, for our hospitals, I think um, especially I know at our hospital, uh, we're certainly taking a stronger look to make sure that we're not minimizing any of the truly critical care areas. Um, in in any plans going forward. You know, um, people have thought for a long time that care is moving more outpatient, but we see that when a a crisis and a pandemic like this develops, um, certainly that inpatient capacity is needed. And so I think that we're going to have to take a strong look at that. Is there anything you'd like for people to keep in mind uh, as we continue in this pandemic? Yeah, I I think, you know, people keep saying this, uh, but it, it is important to reiterate uh, we really do have to make sure that we're doing um, all of the things to to keep ourselves healthy. Uh, when vaccination is available, we certainly want to make sure that uh, folks are vaccinated. There's an order to that, and you know we've vaccinated 
literally thousands of people now at Grossmont um, and across the SHARP system, of course, and I know other health systems are doing that. I think that uh, social distancing and masking is extremely important, um, especially around the holidays. Uh, and I know that people are getting weary of that, but that is, uh, that is what works. Um, and so we always want to uh, uh, make sure that people are doing that so that we're here to take care of them in the event that they have non-COVID related issues as well, like strokes and uh, heart attacks, uh, as you might imagine. I've been speaking with Scott Evans, CEO of Sharp Grossmont. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jade. You have a great day. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. Luna Guzman has risked everything to seek asylum in the U.S. A transgender woman, she left her native Guatemala behind to find a life in California, the one place in the world where she could imagine being safe. Today, we bring you a documentary special about Guzman from the California Report magazine. Host Sasha Coca has followed her over the last two years, reporting from a migrant shelter in Tijuana, an ICE detention center here in San Diego, and a tiny drag bar in Modesto. Her story says a lot about how U.S. immigration policy fails when it comes to recognizing people who live outside the gender binary, how the epic backlog of asylum cases in the U.S. can add to their trauma, and how transgender migrants at the border are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. Recently, I got a voicemail from somebody who was breathing so heavily, I could hardly tell who it was. Hola Sasha, déjame decirte que nada más di positivo al coronavirus. I felt my stomach drop when I heard the voice in Spanish, lungs fighting the coronavirus. It was someone whose story I'd been following for almost two years, someone whose life I couldn't imagine could get any harder, now sick with COVID in the ICU. 26 years old, HIV positive, in and out of ICE detention. Her name is Luna Guzman, and she was calling me to thank me for following her all this time, traveling to a migrant shelter in Tijuana, to an ICE detention center in San Diego, and a tiny drag bar in Modesto. She said if she dies from COVID, she hopes people will remember a little bit about her. And just a warning, this piece contains descriptions of sexual violence. When she turned 15, like so many girls in her town in Guatemala, 
Luna Guzman celebrated with a quinceañera. Me prestaron el vestido de una compañera. My friend lent me the dress because she saw the way I used to cry every time I'd pass the dress shop on the way to school. With all of those beautiful dresses, I would just press my hand up against the glass and stare at them for a long time. The dress she borrowed was turquoise with a long skirt. She took off her tennis and put on heels and a tiara. She and her friends, girls she'd known since kindergarten, listened to the classic song Quinceañera by Thalia. The lyrics are all about growing up, changing into a woman, your body changing, your dreams changing. We had a cake, two or three bottles of champagne. I had chambelanes. Boys who dressed up in suits to escort her into the party. But no one was there from Luna's family. It was a secret party at a friend's house whose parents were away. And that, Luna says, was her coming of age as a young woman. A 15-year-old whose mother loved her as a son, totally accepted her as a gay son, but couldn't fathom her as a girl. Those moments, putting on the turquoise dress, the heels, the tiara, still linger in Luna's memory as a time she truly felt delight and freedom. Something to be savored again and again as the next decade began to unfold. Even as she put back on her soccer jerseys and tried to look like the boy she knew she wasn't inside. Even as she dealt with brutal violence. And even as she decided to take a terrible risk and leave everything behind in Guatemala to try to find a life in California. The one place in the world where she can imagine being safe. Being herself. Her story says a lot about how U.S. immigration policy fails when it comes to recognizing people who live outside the gender binary. How this country's epic backlog of asylum cases can add to their trauma. About the tenacity it takes to try to come to California from Central America if you're transgender. Growing up in Guatemala, Luna says everyone in her town knew she was different. An openly gay kid who referred to herself in the feminine pronoun in Spanish. Over the years, she says, neighbors harassed her repeatedly. Some women started throwing rocks at me. They said I was a bad example for their kids. Some of the women threw water at me. Water with bleach. And one day, when Luna was 13, just on the cusp of adolescence, she says she was raped by an older man who was a neighbor. I would ask, why me? If anyone is up there, explain it to me. Why me? By the way, that voice you're hearing in English is Zoe Luna. No relation. She's a pioneering trans actress, and we've asked her to do the voiceover in English for Luna's story. Sex trafficking is rampant in Guatemala. The UN has denounced the shocking number of children forced into sex trafficking rings because of poverty, and Luna became one of them. 
some powerful men in her town forced her into prostitution. The clients were older men who Luna says would pay hundreds of U.S. dollars to sleep with young boys and transgender girls. I made them a lot of money. They forced me to use drugs, drugs they would sell to my clients. Guys so much older than me. The traffickers had connections with police, Luna says, so there was nowhere she could complain. Then, when she was 16, she says, she found out she was HIV positive, and she remembers the harassment from her neighbors getting worse. Once, she remembers some of them beat her up so badly, they broke her collarbone, telling her they wanted her to behave like a real man. My town is so small, and there was no information about sexual orientation or HIV. No information about anything. It's so close-minded. When she turned 19, she says she was still being forced into sex work sometimes. But she started to take some small steps to wrest back control of her life. She signed up to become a volunteer firefighter, went through the training course, saved money for the uniform. She felt so powerful rescuing people from car accidents, hosing down burning buildings. But then she says the other firefighters found out she was HIV positive and kept taunting her with homophobic slurs. I dreamed about coming to California, to San Francisco. She'd seen videos online of San Francisco's massive pride parade. She knew California was a place she couldn't be fired or evicted for being transgender, where she would have the legal right to get an ID in the name she wants to use, or use the restroom that matches her gender identity. To follow my dreams, not so much to get ahead financially, but just to make enough money to pay for my transition, to flee the life I lived in Guatemala. So one day about four years ago, she decided to leave her town, leave her family, the fire department, the neighbors, the pimps. She was 22 years old. Luna shows me pictures from the journey of her sitting on top of that famous train, La Bestia, that migrants take north. It's easy to pick her out. She's slight with the same gap-toothed smile and mischievous glint in her eye. She didn't wear women's clothes on the journey, but as she's done for most of her life, she kept her hair short and wore men's t-shirts and shorts for safety. Presenting as a man didn't always protect her. When Luna made it to Tijuana, it was August of 2017. Back then, she could just walk up to the border crossing and ask for asylum. She told an officer she feared homophobic violence. But Border Patrol officials didn't check the boxes on her intake form, saying she identified as LGBT. And that's where things started to go wrong for her. ICE put her in the Otay Mesa Detention Center near San Diego, gave her a bed in a crowded men's unit. Ten days after being taken into custody, an asylum officer vetted her story and found her credible. She told the officer she was gay, HIV positive, and was afraid she would be harmed in Guatemala because she sometimes dressed as a woman. 
According to its own policies, the government is supposed to give detainees like Luna access to a special trans detention unit. But they didn't. Luna spent months in the men's unit before her asylum case could be heard in front of a judge. Good morning, this is Immigration Judge Olga Atia sitting in the Immigration Court in Otay Mesa, California. Day 50 in detention. Luna has an interpreter, but no lawyer. First, you have the right to be represented by an attorney or a qualified representative of your own choosing at no expense to the government. If you didn't catch that, the judge is saying that if Luna wants an attorney, she has to find one and pay for one herself. I want to look for an attorney. Day 90 in detention. Luna tells the judge she can't afford her own lawyer, and she's had no luck finding a pro bono one after sending letters to lots of organizations. Yes, Your Honor, I am ready to proceed and speak on my behalf. Day 156 in detention. Luna finally gets a chance to officially submit her asylum application. You can hear the judge stamp it. There you go, sir. And tell her it looks complete. But then the judge tells her there are no available appointments to hear the merits of her case for another five months. The court's that backlogged. Day 182 in detention. After nearly six months, the judge says Luna can be released on a bond of $4,500. But like many asylum seekers, she has no one to help pay that kind of money. Luna pleads with the judge, telling her being locked up is harming her psychologically. Day 226 in detention. Luna does something she never expected to do. She gives up on her asylum case and asks to be deported right away. So then it's going to be about eight months that I've been detained here at the detention center. And I feel alone, and I do not have the words to explain to you, Your Honor. Uh, I apologize, Your Honor, the interpreter would like to mention. Here, the interpreter takes a pause. She's confused. She thinks Luna is a man because of her appearance and her legal name. But Luna's referring to herself in the feminine, in Spanish. The judge asks for clarification, still calling Luna sir. Now you've indicated to the court, sir, that you no longer are interested in pursuing your application for asylum. Is that correct? Luna says yes, but you can hear her voice cracking. There's no way to win. She's either got to stay locked up in the men's facility or give up her only ticket to be able to stay in the U.S. On the plane ICE chartered back to Guatemala, Luna says she had a panic attack, shaking so badly she could barely walk out onto the tarmac when they landed in Guatemala City. As soon as she could, she got back on buses and trains to begin the long journey north towards California again. I meet Luna several months later on a trip to Tijuana at a migrant shelter called Casa del Migrante. 
I'm reporting on the migrant caravans at the border, and I interview so many Central American asylum seekers. But something about Luna strikes me. Maybe it's her persistence when she talks about coming to California. I'm a transgender woman. I'm not going to live my life dressed as a boy. No. No, no, no. No, one day, I want everyone who knows me to say, Luna made it. She fought for her dreams. And they came true. One night, about six months after I started following Luna's story, I get a collect call from a detention center. Press 1 to accept the call. Luna. Hola, ¿cómo estás? Hola, ¿cómo estás? Luna is back at Otay Mesa, the detention center just east of San Diego, in the same cell, in the same bed where she had stayed the year before. ICE grants me permission to visit her there. A guard leads me to a tiny room where Luna is waiting, the word detainee emblazoned in white letters on the back of her blue uniform. She looks gaunt and exhausted, but her eyes are still bright. She says the sexual harassment here has been a nightmare. Luna tells me she can't afford to buy shampoo or soap or chocolate bars in the commissary. She says other inmates have offered to buy them for her in exchange for sexual favors. I'm not going to do something I don't want to do for a cup of soup that costs 60 cents or some chocolate, or a packet of oatmeal that costs 30 cents. I'm, I'm not going to have sex with anyone here. It's discrimination on the outside, but here, it's a different world. It's worse. You're trapped. What Luna's telling me resonates with a study showing that LGBT migrants are nearly a hundred times more likely to be sexually victimized in detention. Luna says the clink of handcuffs, the crackle of the guards' walkie-talkies, has come to haunt her dreams. Listen, you hear that? That sound, it's all the time, day and night. I'm traumatized from hearing it. The sound of the keys. All the time. Even in your dreams. You think they're coming for you, to handcuff you. The sound of the keys, the sound of the doors. Ese ruido de puertas. Pam, pam, pam. This stint in detention lasts only a couple months. Luna crossed without papers after being deported once already. Even the second time around, she might have had legal grounds to make a claim to stay. But without a lawyer, she didn't know her options. ICE deported her back to Guatemala again.
an official with a megaphone stands in the Guatemala City Airport greeting deportees, almost all young men, with a warm welcome, plus a sandwich and an orange soda. Luna gets off the ice-chartered plane. She counts out four U.S. dollar bills from a plastic bag marked personal property. It's money she says she earned working in the laundry at the detention center. A human rights advocate warns Luna that she could be killed here and sends her to a safe house. But Luna wants to get out of Guatemala and try once again to make it to California. And she finds a way to do it with some money wired to her from an unexpected source of help. It's a Friday night at the Brave Bull, one of the oldest gay bars in California. It's not in San Francisco or L.A., but Modesto. A huge, old-fashioned disco ball twirls above a trio of drag performers in cowboy hats, a guy strumming a guitar, and two very glamorous gals in high-heeled boots lip-syncing to Ana Barbara's song. Buscando un corazón. I'm looking for a heart. It's a song these drag performers are dedicating to Luna. Say thank you to everyone who comes out to support every time we perform. Um, and a huge shout out to a friend of ours, um, Luna, who is a trans woman who has been deported. And we have been trying to show her so much love all the way from California. Thank you, everyone. This surprising crew rooting for Luna is led by a kind of fairy godfather, Tony Rodriguez. He first heard about Luna when I reported a short part of her story from Tijuana for the California Report back in 2018. Tony's a former truck driver who came to Modesto looking for his own California dream, a place where he could transition to male. He grew up in the Bronx in a Puerto Rican family, and his mom rejected him. But it was California where I had set my sights because that's is where I knew I could really be the person that I wanted to be. It turns out that for me, it worked out great. I had great support from my coworkers. I had great support from my friends. Then I hear about Luna and I'm like, well, I, I had it okay. So, you know, why not help somebody else so maybe their transition and their journey could be a little bit easier. Tony sent Luna $80 after she got deported. Money that helped her make her way back to Mexico. Now, they've been talking over WhatsApp ever since. Now it's spring 2019. Luna leaves me a voicemail saying she's made her third journey north to Tapachula, in Chiapas, just across the border from Guatemala. She's feeling safe enough to dress as a woman again. She meets up with some new friends, who are also transgender, for dinner at a cafe. And she calls me at 6 the next morning. ¿Cómo estás? Me siento mal, Sasha. ¿Qué pasó? Anoche, anoche unos vatos abusaron sexualmente de mí. She tells me she was the last one waiting for a taxi after her friends left the cafe. Then a car pulled up, 
She says five armed men abducted her, took her to a remote area, and raped and beat her. Every time I try to show who I really am, why does it go wrong? I urge her to go to the hospital to tell the police. But she tells me, just like in Guatemala, the Mexican police in Chiapas would probably do nothing. Just laugh at her and say homophobic things. I haven't been able to confirm Luna was raped because she didn't report it to anybody. And this is part of the paradox for asylum seekers. They're expected to document and prove all the horrible things that have happened to them, when sometimes, in fact, the act of reporting these abuses could put them in more danger. Of course, as a journalist, I've done my best to vet her story. KQED, where we produced the California report, even had to sue the Department of Homeland Security to get her records released from ICE, which we finally did after almost a year. It's fall 2019 now, and Luna finally gets some good news. She's granted a humanitarian visa to stay in Mexico, at least temporarily. I go to Diwana to meet her at the section of border fence where she crossed the last time she tried to come to California. She points to squirrels and dragonflies flitting between the slats of the fence, between countries, without even knowing it. Look at those squirrels coming and going, and that cat. It just crossed the border through the gaps in the fence and then slipped back into Mexico. It's only we humans who don't have that freedom. She takes a rock and bangs on the metal border fence. Listen to that. That's a solid wall. It's a wall that kills your dreams. It takes away everything. I told myself that when I climbed over this wall, I would leave my past behind. I would be reborn. I ask her what she thinks as she looks through the fence to California. The United States, it's so close, but I can't get there. Look, that's California, but I can't be there. One day I will. It might be 2050 or 2100, but I will get there. That trip, about a year ago, was the last time I saw Luna. When COVID-19 hit, she left me a voicemail that she planned to shelter in place with a friend outside of Ensenada. We chatted a bit about the COVID outbreak at Otay Mesa, where she was detained the year before. Among ICE detention centers, it turned out to have one of the biggest outbreaks of COVID. In fact, the first detainee in ICE custody to die of it died there. Hearing that, I felt relieved that Luna was far away from detention, that ironically being deported may have saved her life. And then I got that phone call that she had COVID. Then, as it's done so many times over the last two years, my WhatsApp feed with Luna went quiet for weeks. I tried to call the public hospital in Tijuana to track her down, 
but I couldn't get through. But a few weeks later, Luna left me another message from her hospital bed. Hola, Sasha. ¿Cómo estás? They took her off the vent. Oh, God. I thought I was going to die. But nope. This bitch, Luna, she's still here, resisting everything. I know this virus isn't going to kill me. I've got a lot more life in me. A lot I still want to say. I don't need a ventilator because I'm a strong-ass woman. I've made it through everything. I'm going to make it through this. I'm still here. An epilogue to Luna's story. She says in November the Mexican government extended her humanitarian visa for another year, but she's having trouble earning a living in Tijuana. She has lingering symptoms from COVID-19, including fatigue, difficulty breathing, and sore vocal cords. Her immune system is also struggling to fight HIV. But Luna says she's ready to try for asylum in the U.S. again. She's hopeful President-elect Joe Biden will make good on a campaign promise to, quote, end President Trump's detrimental asylum policies. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. Just before the break, we heard KQED's report on Luna Guzman, a transgender woman who has tried to escape persecution and violence in her native Guatemala by seeking asylum in the U.S. Luna's journey has spanned a number of years and several attempts to claim asylum, but she's still a long way from achieving her dream of living in America. This year, the San Diego Union-Tribune produced a multi-part series of in-depth reports on the U.S. asylum system. The series is called Returned. And joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune immigration reporter Kate Morrissey. Kate, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Now, for all practical purposes, does the U.S. have a working asylum system in place right now? Well, we don't really have um, people entering into it uh, fresh right now. So if somebody comes to the border today, and with with the intention of seeking protection, um, most likely they're going to be turned back under um, this pandemic policy through through an order issued by the CDC that um, you know basically says anybody who's who's a migrant seeking asylum, we're not going to let them into the country during the pandemic. So they either get returned back to the country that they were most recently in, so most likely Mexico, um, or in some cases put on planes back to their home countries. It's it's sort of a mix. Now, the situation uh, has gotten a lot worse for asylum seekers in the last four years. What are some of the changes the Trump administration has made? 
the first changes that we really saw came through um, the Attorney General and the Department of Justice because immigration court, unlike most courts that we think about in the United States, is actually in the executive branch of government and the Attorney General is the boss of the judges. So the Attorney General has these special powers to um, sort of re-decide uh, precedent and case law in immigration. And uh, we've seen the Attorney General do that over and over again and sort of restrict definitions and, and cut out groups of people who might otherwise have been considered as qualifying for asylum. Um, and then we saw, you know, the Remain in Mexico program, which has been a, a huge change for asylum seekers experiences when they're when they're coming to the United States. Um, it requires people to to stay in Mexico while they wait for their cases to to happen in immigration court. They cross back and forth to go to their hearings, but they are on their own trying to find, you know, places to live, food to eat figuring out how to sustain themselves and stay safe in, in you know, border cities in Mexico where migrants are, are notoriously targeted for, for all kinds of harm. So, and then we've seen, you know, restriction after restriction since then, trying to sort of every kind of tweak imaginable to make fewer people eligible for the system or even have access to the system. And even just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen more rule changes coming out of the administration. So that's, that's still an ongoing thing. Now, could the new Biden administration reverse those changes and make the asylum system workable again? Well, the Biden administration could work to to undo what the Trump administration has done. Um, that will take time and and a lot of figuring out of, of how to go about it. Uh, you know, the Trump administration has had four years to put these different measures in place. And there are rules about how to go about undoing different kinds of regulations. So it's not something that can happen overnight. You know, even if we return to what we had before the Trump administration, that system was not itself terribly functional, as as we've shown in in my reporting over the past year. The system has been full of disparities and bias for years, um, and people have been you know returned to their deaths, who arguably were the kind of people that the system was created to protect. Do you think, Kate, that there's a fundamental issue here? that many Americans no longer support the idea of taking in refugees from around the world? In other words, does the broken system actually reflect our changing attitude toward helping refugees? Well, I think one of the things that um, really stuck out to me as I looked back at the, the history of this system and, and the history of the American public's perception of this system is that, by and large, the American public has never been super enthusiastic. We initially were in talks with other countries right after World War II to create something like this. We didn't sign on to those international agreements until the mid-60s, and we didn't actually pass laws that created this system until 1980. And so you see over the course of, of U.S. history, a lot of feet dragging and, and pretty immediate xenophobic or, or other sort of anti-migrant, anti-asylum seeker rhetoric coming out even, you know, even in the 1980s. So what's the case in favor of this? Why should America continue to accept people who are being persecuted in their homelands? Well, when you think about, about why the system was created, when you look at, you know, what happened during the Holocaust, or when you look at sort of these, these widespread issues of forced displacement around the world, it's a global problem. When people are, are not safe, when they don't have the, the basic idea of, of security to live in, when their lives are in danger, 
they're going to try to live somewhere else rather than having, you know, an orderly and efficient way to get people, you know, resettled and, and, and living their lives. It, it creates a lot of still being in danger. Your most recent report focused on how we could reimagine the U.S. asylum system. What are some of the key points of that new vision? One of the the big ones is moving the immigration court to the judicial branch. And so, you know, everyone from the Immigration Judges Union to the Federal Bar Association are are all pushing for this and and have been pushing for it for a long time. Um, There's also possibilities of creating a system that looks more like the Canadian system. So if, if somebody comes to the United States uh, with a student visa and says, hey, you know, it's not safe for me to go back to my country after they've been here. Um, they don't go through the immigration court process right away. They actually just go to the asylum office. They do an interview with an asylum officer and that asylum officer can grant them asylum. So it's not adversarial in the way that you think of a court where you have a very well-trained attorney arguing against your ability to get protection. Um, and so Canada has a system that looks more like that. Um, They also provide, you know, legal help, legal support to asylum seekers going through that process. And then uh, another one would be ending uh, detention for asylum seekers, which would actually um, save, you know, U.S. taxpayers quite a bit of money. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Kate Morrissey. Her multi-part series on the U.S. asylum system is called Returned. And Kate, thank you. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.